would open up with me to Ephesians chapter 5. This past week, my family and I were able to, to go down to uh, the Salt Lake City uh, area. Uh, while we were down there, we went to uh, a, uh, a dinosaur park uh, in Ogden, uh, Utah, where they had a little small, tiny museum indoors and then a large kind of outdoor uh, grounds that you could walk through. And they had these, uh, you know, their uh, vision of what different dinosaurs uh, looked like. Uh, and I have to say, overall, was not very well put together. Uh, it, was, it was a good experience, but uh, we, we learned. Uh, and uh, you go to some museums, and, and I appreciate uh, that they will acknowledge and, and clarify whether what you're looking at is an actual uh, fossil bone that was uh, discovered or if it, what you're looking at is what they call a cast of a uh, fossil. Uh, and a cast of a fossil is not an actual uh, bone that they dug up, but uh, it's something that they have uh, created out of a mold based upon something that they have dug or what they would envision a bone to look like. And so some museums will will be forthright with that information of, hey, what you're looking at is a, is a cast, it's a replica of something else, or what we believe this would look like. Uh, and what was presented in this uh, museum d- didn't have any of that information. Uh, and uh, o- over the, the course of the, the indoor part of the museum, there was a lots of uh, you know, dates of millions of years, and I've, I've talked with my, my sons about that. Uh, you know, we don't believe in, in, in millions of years. Uh, and uh, we've, I've talked through the, the assumptions that are made in the, in the dating process when they come to those conclusions. And now whenever we, my, my kids read something, because uh, Lincoln can read now, he, he looks at, he's, and whenever he sees the millions of years, he says, that's not right. Uh, and I say, amen. It was, uh, and it was interesting that at the, the outdoor portion of the park, they had, this, they had a plaque on a, on a man-made uh, tree that you could kids could go up into and then kind of slide uh, down very obviously man-made but the, the title of the plaque it said prehistoric tree and i said well uh it's very obvious the slide is a part of the inside of the tree this is not prehistoric very obviously <clears throat> but on that plaque it was really interesting i, I read the the whole thing i should have snapped a, a picture of it but uh, what it was uh, it it said, hey, well, this is a prehistoric tree, and it's put here because there was a large Brachiosaurus model right next to it. We want kids to be able to see, you know, kind of the different size relationships. But at the end of the plaque, it was also very specific about a purpose. And it said, uh, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it says, we want children to know that dinosaurs lived millions of years ago before human beings uh, existed or coexisted with woolly mammoths and now other extinct animals. So like part of the, the whole purpose was to try to impact and influence kids to believe that dinosaurs existed prior to human existence. And that's kind of part of the, the whole bigger evolutionary worldview where you can't have dinosaurs and human beings on the earth together. Uh, and uh, that kind of disregards all of uh, human cultures across the, the globe that have uh, dragon stories and myths and tales and so many things. I won't get into all of that, but as we were talking about uh, all of this with my with my sons, you know, me, hey, you know, we believe that God created in, in six literal uh, 24-hour days, and then he rested on the, the seventh day. And I, I told my sons, and you need to be ready for, for people to laugh at you when you say that. 
and, and I'll, I'll train and equip my, my sons to engage in those conversations. And uh, I'm happy to answer questions if you say, hey, what, you know, what, what do I say in a conversation like that? But, but I was preparing my sons uh, for that because that's, that's really important. That, that if, and nowadays, if you say, hey, I believe that God created in six literal days, you'll, you'll get laughed at. You'll, you'll be pointed at as being unscientific well, when actually the science is far more on six-day creation than it is on uh, the evolutionary theory. But in telling my, my sons this, you know, there, there's many things that we need to be prepared for in the Christian life. Uh, and there's many things that the, that the world will, will, will try to make us feel little and feel small. And they'll really try to use fear to intimidate us, uh, to abandon our beliefs. Uh, and uh, there are certain things that the, that the Bible uh, teaches that uh, if you say that you believe what the Bible teaches on, on that area, that the world will laugh at you, right? Six-day creation is one of those. If you believe in a global flood during the days of Noah, uh, Noah and the ark, the world will, will laugh at you. The, the world will probably laugh if you believe in miracles, if you believe in the, the virgin birth. There are, there are other biblical truths that if, if you believe them and profess them, that the world will not laugh at you. It will actually accuse you. It, it will uh, attack you. It will accuse you of, of hatred, of, of bigotry, of, of abuse, of uh, oppression. And what we're looking at in Ephesians 5 uh, on this topic of, of biblical marriage, this is one of those doctrines in the scriptures that if you if you give voice in a public setting to a biblical view of marriage and what we've seen here in ephesians 5 the, you may not just get laughed at you may be a, a accused of a, being oppressive uh, and i'll tell you the same thing that i told my boys you need to be ready for that and, and you need to, to stick to uh, the scriptures you need to be convinced of what the scriptures teach and you need to be willing to have conversations about what the scriptures teach and not back down or shy away. Marriage, what we're looking at this morning, marriage is worth fighting for. Marriage is worth defending. It's worth being laughed at. It's, it's worth uh, being ridiculed and, and mocked. And I want to persuade you to that event to be able to stand strong when those conversations arise in your day-to-day life. We've been, we've been spending the last several weeks studying through Ephesians uh, 5. Uh, and, and in this chapter, the Apostle Paul is, is braiding together multiple doctrines. He's, he's taking salvation, uh, his understanding of Christ, his understanding of the, the church, his understanding of creation, his understanding of the future end-time uh, events, yeah, and he's taking marriage and he's braiding all of these different doctrines together into an unbreakable cable. Uh, and by, by doing that, he helps us to understand uh, what is being commanded and why it is being commanded. Not, not just, hey, we need to do this, but here's why this is important. Uh, this is why you must obey these commands and these instructions. And in previous weeks, we, we studied kind of the introduction to uh, the household code. Now, the introduction is really verses 15 to 21. We looked at that several weeks ago. Now, and Paul uh, introduced this whole subject by, by instructing us and the Ephesians to, to walk in wisdom. And don't walk as unwise, but as wise. Uh, and he also, uh, the, the tail end of verse uh, 18, he said, but be filled with the Spirit. 
So how, how do we walk wisely? It's be, being filled or walking in the Spirit. And then what does that look like? Well, and then he, he's going to lay all of that out. Really, uh, being filled with the Spirit is going to be the introduction to the household code. Uh, as Paul is going to give instructions to what, a, what the relationships within a Christian household uh, that we see in beginning in verse 22 and go, go all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. But Paul's going to, to be laying out the, the practical application of what a spirit-filled life looks like uh, is found in your home. And who, how you relate to others in your own household, how you treat your parents, how you treat your siblings, how you treat your spouse, reveals more about where you stand and what your spiritual life looks like uh, than anything else. So this morning we're going to look at verses uh, 31 to 33 in uh, chapter 5, but I want to get a, a running start, and I want to begin by kind of re- reading and reviewing verses uh, 22 through 30. Paul writes in verse 22, he says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject or ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. This is Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife Even as himself and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So after giving instructions to wives and after giving instructions to husbands, verses 31 to 33 are going to be, in essence, a a summary of Paul's overall argument, his overall teaching on the institution of marriage. And these uh, summary instructions uh, tell us what God is doing in and through marriage. What, ha- what is God seeking to accomplish by, by giving humanity marriage? God has been working in and through marriage since the beginning of time. And even though the, the world seeks to uh, abolish it, we need to understand the importance of it so that we're willing to, to talk about it and willing to be laughed at and scorned and mocked and even attacked during our own time. So what should we be willing to defend concerning biblical marriage? Let's say in in this passage we see three characteristics of of biblical marriage that we need to... I've written them as what we need to defend. But what we need to defend is also what we need to proclaim and also what we need to live out. So I'm writing it as we need to defend, but also here we need to, to speak about it and to live it out and model it in our own homes. And the first of these characteristics... It's seen in verse 31. We put it this way, that we must defend marriage as ordained by God. Verse 31, uh, if you 
probably see in your copy of uh, the scriptures that it is in all capital letters. And when you see that in most Bibles, that is showing us that that is a, a quote from the Old Testament. Uh, and so whenever you see that in the New Testament, uh, it's helpful to be able to, to kind of cross-reference and see what is he pointing back to. Paul, Paul is building his case upon previous revelation, uh, and he's just directly quoting uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. He says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so... Paul is building upon what God has established in creation. Uh, what God ordained on the sixth day uh, was the, the, the union of husband and wife. You think about it this way. So it's ordained on the sixth day, but that's the very first day of human existence. So there has not been one single day in all of human existence where marriage has not existed. Now that's something to, to think about. And Paul is, is affirming that. And what, what do we see here about marriage? Well, we see that marriage is, is intended to be between one man and one woman. Uh, it's very, very clear and, and very obvious, but sometimes we, we speed past the obvious. And that is God's uh, desire for marriage. Now, we also see that marriage takes priority over every other human relationship. Because it says, for this reason, a, a son, he will do what? He'll leave his parents... And the assumption is that uh, the woman that he's going to marry is also going to do the same with her parents. So a son and a daughter are going to leave parents and they're going to, uh, to be married. They're going to be joined together. They're going to form uh, a new household. So this uh, re- relationship of marriage is more important than uh, the parent-child relationship. It's more important than any other uh, friendship on the earth. And that's what uh, I see a lot of... Uh, Young couples that when they when they get married, they start to see their friends treat them differently. It's like, yeah, things are a little bit different now. That just happens. Goes that way. Because marriage is the most important relationship. Here's also something to to think about, especially men. And but women can can be guilty of this too, that that marriage is more important than than your work and your career. How many jobs have you already had in life? More than one, right? You can talk to me. It's okay. Yeah, you are probably going to have a myriad of jobs. What if you were married to that job at Pizza Hut, your very first job, right? Right? You, you are, you are, you're going to have multiple jobs, but Lord willing, you're only ever going to have one spouse. And that relationship is far more important than work or any other relationship in life. So marriage is between one man and one woman. Marriage takes priority. And then also marriage creates a, a new household, right? A son and a daughter leaving parents, being joined uh, to the wife. And he says, for this reason, and I would argue this. I'm not going to die on this hill, but since I'm in this text. That this reason reveals that God's designed for uh, for the household is really for, for children to live in their parents' home uh, and their household until they themselves are married. Now, I'm not saying that you're in sin if you're living outside of your parents' household. Uh, I know there's a, there's a lot more to that. But uh, the ideal situation uh, would and what we would counsel young adults is, hey, be, be a part of your parents' household. And if you're not living under their exact roof, still have them be involved in your life. 
That don't, don't cut the ties and go run off into the wild blue yonder without them. Again, that's, that's the world's wisdom. That's what the world is proclaiming. Hey, go and do this. This will bring happiness. Uh, it brings a lot of loneliness and isolation. Uh, and you're cutting yourselves off from the strongest. Until you are married, what's your strongest relationship? The, the parent-child relationship is the strongest relationship until uh, you are married and you go off. And so uh, if you're a young single, again, I'm not saying that, uh, that you're in sin if you're not living in your parents' home. Uh, there, there's a lot more to this, but your parents should be involved in your life. And, and uh, we'll talk about this more next week because uh, Paul emphasizes this in the very next couple of verses. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Uh, and then he, he gives a commentary. He's, he's citing the Old Testament, all, all capitals. He's citing the, the fifth commandment. And he says, this is the first commandment with a promise. That if you do this, there's a blessing that comes with it. And so we're talking about, hey, this is an act of faith. Young, young adults, like, do I believe that there's blessing that comes with honoring and obeying my parents even now that I'm an adult? And uh, the, the, even if you are married, that doesn't remove the responsibility of still honoring your parents. So there's a lot more to that that we'll talk about next week. Uh, but uh, marriage is going to create a new household, uh, and that household is still going to be linked with two other households in the same community, right? Because uh, when you get married, you get in-laws as well. Uh, and so the, the whole community is going to be interwoven and interconnected. But uh, I would also add this, that marriage joins together a, a man and a woman for life right and that's he, he's citing genesis 2 he says, and shall leave father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh now there's a there's a clear allusion there to physical intimacy that a husband and wife experience but but that physical intimacy is merely an outward expression of the unity that they share in a myriad of ways because when, when you are married, you're, you're coming and you're doing life together. Not some of life, but all of life. Okay? Uh, there was a, a unique uh, Wall Street Journal article from November of last year. Uh, it was entitled, uh, Moving in together doesn't match the financial benefits of marriage, but why? So it was something that the, uh, a Wall Street Journal, Journal reporter, easy for me to say, uh, found this uh, report looking at, if you looked at... Uh, a broad spectrum of couples. If you looked at two different couples who had been together for the same amount of time, and yet one couple was married and one couple was uh, cohabitating, that there was a profound difference in their financial situation. So uh, Julia Carpenter, the author of the, the article, uh, begins in, in this way. She says, a walk down the aisle can be a route to greater wealth and prosperity for couples in the U.S., Married people have higher net worths and are more likely to be homeowners than their unmarried counterparts uh, their age are. And the mystery, though, it's funny that she uses that word. Uh, the mystery, though, she writes, is why cohabiting but unmarried couples struggle to build wealth in the same way. She then gives us uh, some rather astounding numbers. Uh, she says, as of 2019, the median net worth of cohabitating couples between the ages of 25 to 34 was $17,372. Uh, but the net worth of the average married couples in that same age range was $68,210. 
So it was about a, the, the 25% of what a married couple's net worth was, was the net worth of the, the cohabitating uh, couple. And that uh, data was produced by the Federal Reserve Bank of the St. Saint, Saint Louis. Uh, and they also found that for singles, uh, the, they were even further behind the cohabitating couples, and their net worth on average was about $7,000. Uh, and so it, it's just interesting. Why is there such a big gap uh, between married couples and cohabitating couples? Because, again, most couples, as they cohabitate, they are not truly weaving all of life together. Most of the time, they're keeping finances uh, separate, uh, and they're, they're not really committed to pursuing long-term goals together. And that's what marriage is about. Uh, marriage is, is going to uh, involve uh, weaving two lives together. Uh, the two become one flesh. And that, uh, in, this is where we kind of see that the wisdom of God and the foolishness of the world of what they are. Uh, we can compare and contrast and just see what are the, what's the fruit of this and what's the fruit of this. Uh, what, what does each one bring forth? And again, God in his wisdom has ordained marriage for human flourishing. God in his infinite wisdom and in his infinite goodness says this is what is best. And he said that the very same day uh, that he created human beings, he established marriage. And so he understands that when a man and woman commit to one another, they are joined together in every way, physically, domestically, economically, spiritually. And this is what is best. Because that gives them a common purpose in all of those areas. But the, the world says that a couple can thrive kind of with half-hearted commitment, that we can go and commit in some ways, but not in every way. And then the, the Wall Street Journal in this article is just kind of confused as to why is this? Right? We see this huge discrepancy. What's going on here? And so this is, this is interesting when the world begins to notice what the scriptures proclaim. Right? And they begin to see the different harvest coming up. But I'll ask uh, this question of what is it that you believe about marriage? Truly, in, in the stillness of your heart, you don't have to write the answer for the test and submit it to me. Truly, in the, in the stillness of your own heart, what do you believe about marriage? There's one modern secular author of a book about uh, the history of marriage, uh, and she defined marriage as a social invention unique to humans. Right? A social invention unique to humans. Uh, and really, we have to ask, is that all that marriage is? And what are the implications of viewing marriage in that way? If, if marriage is just a social invention by us, then we can do anything that we want with marriage, right? We can shape it and, and form it to be uh, whatever our sinful desires want it to be. But if, if marriage is a God-ordained institution, then I'm not free to, to reshape it and remold it. I don't get to, to, to change it and, and rework it into something that I want it to be. I have to take it as is, and I also have to believe that by taking it as is, that's what is best. Uh, God in his wisdom has given us good things. Do I believe that? And am I convinced of that? So we see that in verse 31, God has ordained marriage in creation. This is the, the kind of the first summary statement that the Apostle Paul gives in the first characteristic of marriage that we have to be willing to stand upon. But there's a second characteristic of marriage in verse 32. We must defend marriage as a picture of Christ and the church. Verse 32, he says, This mystery is great. 
but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And so it's interesting. He, he cites Genesis 2, speaking about uh, a man leaving his father and mother and, the, and joining with his wife and the two becoming one flesh. And it seems like that's, uh, there's a little bit of mystery to that, right? Like, how does, how does that work? How, how do two people become one people? There's a, there's a mystery, but then the Apostle Paul says that actually points to something bigger, something greater. That God has designed marriage to paint a very particular picture. And when he says that this mystery, well, what is this mystery? Paul uses this term 21 times throughout uh, his letters in the New Testament. Now, and in every instance when he, he uses it, now, he will point back to previous revelation or he'll explain the mystery there in the context. So we don't ever have to, to be uh, in wonder about what is this mystery? Uh, he explains it uh, in the context usually. Uh, and uh, these mysteries in the New Testament were once hidden uh, purposes of God that are now revealed in, in Christ. If you, if you turn back to the very beginning of uh, the book of Ephesians, let's just walk through this book. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. We can kind of begin in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him. So it was in the Old Testament... Uh, we, we can look back and see how clear it is now, but, but prior to that, that, the fact that, that the Messiah was going to, to die to pay for our sins so that we could be cleansed and, and made righteous with God on the basis of faith, that, that was a, a mystery in the Old Testament, but made very, very clear in the New Testament. If you, if you turn over to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 3, speaking about the, the big picture plan, of God, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. It's mentioned again in verse 4, about which when you read, uh, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So Christ himself is the mystery there. If you look at the same chapter, verse uh, 9, or let's begin in verse 8. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the good news of the unfathomable riches in, of Christ and to bring to light for all what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. The things that were, were partially covered and veiled in, in the past are now made clear in Christ. If you look over to chapter 6, verse 19, Speaking about and, and requesting prayer on his behalf, he says, as well as on my behalf, what words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. So Paul uses this, this word to describe a purpose of God that was uh, partially hidden, but now fully explained and revealed in, in Christ. Uh, he uses the same term over in Colossians chapter Two, if you turn over just a couple pages to the right uh, in your in your Bibles and look at chapter, uh, actually look at chapter one. Speaking about his own ministry, verses 26 and 27. 
He's intended to to carry out and to preach the word of God at the end of verse 25. And that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints. To whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And then he defines what the mystery is. What's the mystery which was hidden in the past? It's Christ in you. That when you look to Christ in faith, you're united with him. That's what we got to, uh, to participate in and see on display when we had a baptism a few weeks ago. Right? We're, we're celebrating someone's union with Christ. They're united with him in his life, death, and his resurrection. That is our union with Christ. Uh, and, and so this was hidden in the past and made evident now. If you look in Colossians uh, chapter 2, verse 16. It's kind of a, a different illustration here, a visualization. Paul says, therefore, no one is to judge you in food and drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. All of those Old Testament regulations, don't let anybody judge you based upon those. Verse 17, things which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So all of those Old Testament rituals were intended to do what? To point to Jesus, to, to point to him. He's the one that we need to, uh, we need to look for. And if we turn back over to Ephesians chapter 5, where we, where we are this morning, Paul, Paul's going to, to explain a, a, a different mystery here. Right? We, we see that the, the one flesh union of husband and wife is actually just a shadow of something far more substantive, something far more important. As great as marriage is, it's only a shadow of Christ and his church. That's the, the true substance. And marriage is great, but it's just a small portrayal of something far greater. And we need to, to understand that if, if that is what marriage is, that, that it's a small picture of what Jesus has done to save his bride, the church. Right? And, and we, we've studied through the, in the Gospel of John, John 15, that, that Jesus says, that, it tells his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. We've seen that over and over in the Gospel of John, that the world has a, a hatred and an animosity towards Christ. And so is it any wonder that the world also has a hatred and animosity towards marriage? They they can't get to Christ and pull him down. They can't get to Christ and and yank him off of his throne. So all the world is left to do is, is to grasp at the shadows that he casts here upon the earth. Thinking that if somehow they tear down the shadow that they'll hurt the substance. It's impossible. It's, it's the foolishness of rebellion against Christ. But that's what we see. Again, marriage is, is just a shadow. It's not the ultimate. But it still remains a powerful picture. In, in marriage, a wife is a picture of the church. Therefore, she's also a picture of salvation and, and a picture of submission. A husband is a picture of Christ, a picture of the Savior, and a picture of self-sacrificing love. And 
the Apostle Paul is saying that the mystery of marriage is revealed in Christ. So even though God ordained marriage in the original creation on day six, the first day of human existence, he had something bigger in mind that was hidden and now fully revealed and explained in Christ. And outside of the relationships within the, the Trinity itself, there is no more important relationship than the relationship between Christ and his church. Right? That is the most important relationship in all of creation because that's what leads to our salvation. And marriage is intended to be a small picture of the most important relationship in all creation because it's the most important of all human relationships. And yet our culture is working overtime to repaint marriage according to its own desires. Right? They say, hey, we can, we can take what is good, beautiful, and true that God has given to us, and we can, we can repaint it after our own liking and still have it be good. Right? If you went to the Mona Lisa and splashed a bucket of paint on it, would it still be a masterpiece? What if you just completely painted over it? Would it still be a masterpiece? Like, no, not, not at all. We don't, get to, we don't get to do that. And our culture is, uh, is remaking, image in, uh, remaking marriage in its own image. Uh, and indeed, the, the church should call that out and say that is sinful and that is wrong. Uh, and it perverts the picture that God is seeking to paint in marriage. We can't tinker with that. And we, we need to call out the, the sins outside of the, the church and the world. But we also need to examine this reality of how does it apply for us here in this building what does it mean for our church I'd say all of all of the the married couples here i would urge you to think about what picture are you painting of marriage what are you putting on display how beautiful is the picture of marriage that you're painting now are you making marriage attractive to your children now, or does does marriage seem miserable do your children look at your marriage and think, that's what I want when I grow up? There, there's a, a song by a, a musical artist. I won't mention her name because I don't recommend any of her other songs. But she has a song called, Like My Father. And, and the chorus of the song concludes with this line, I need a man who loves me like my father loves my mom. And, and she, she sings about all of the different ways that she's seen her dad love and care for her mom faithfully. And she says, I want that. That's the kind of man I'm, I'm looking for. And, and that is good. But I would say this, that when our, our kids glance at our marriages, they should be able to glance at our marriage and also be able to see Christ in the very same look, in the very same glance. Now, what do I mean by that? So if, if they're looking at our marriage, they should see Christ and his church in the background, in the way that husband and wife relate to one another, how they treat one another, how they speak and how they're working together uh, in, in common goals and a common vision. Uh, and uh, if uh, they look at our marriage, they should be able to see Christ. But oftentimes when we look at Christ, uh, we don't see marriage in the same glance. Right? You say, okay, if that's how Jesus loves his church, and that's how the church submits to Jesus, then where, where, where are my parents? Where, where is their relationship? Does it mean that we, we have to have, be able to be seen in the same exact glance? And that, that's how God designed and intended marriage to be. 
So we, we have to, to think about that. Is that, is that the, the vision and the, what we are painting of marriage? Are we presenting it in all of its beauty and all of its glory or as something else? So how do we go about painting a, a better picture in our marriage? Because most of us would agree, hey, we, we need, to, we need to, to touch some things up on the painting there, right? If we're genuinely honest, we can say that. We're okay. We're all sinners here. We know that. But how do we go about painting a better picture of marriage? That leads to the third characteristic of marriage that, that we have to be willing to, to suffer for and to defend. And this is in verse 33. That we must defend the attitudes that God commands in marriage. Verse 33 says, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. This is the, the, the closing statement, the closing summary to the whole section And the Apostle Paul is going to kind of restate what he's already said, but with a little bit of nuance. He says that husbands are, again, commanded to to love their their wives. Uh, And in the previous verses, he pointed to two illustrations. He says husbands are to love their wives as Christ has loved the church, and as a man loves and cares for his own self, his own body. Right? A man feeds and clothes himself and uh, takes care of himself, and he's to care for his wife in that same exact way. And that's the emphasis here in this verse. And he says wives are, are commanded to uh, respect uh, her husband. But the, the Greek there is actually the, the word uh, phobeo, where we get our word for phobia. Uh, so what Paul is saying is that, that a wife is to, to fear her husband. Uh, and not fear as in tremble when he, in, when he comes into the room. A physical fear of your husband is not a good thing. And that's not what is intended here. Uh, not at all. Uh, but when you, when you hear this, when you read this, think about the fear of the Lord. That there is a, a fear of the Lord that leads to separation from God. Well, we see this in, in Revelation. Right? When, the, when the judgment of God is coming upon the earth and the nations understand what is taking place in Revelation 6. And they understand that they are facing the, the judgment of God. And yet, rather than running to him, they run from him. They run and hide in, in caves. There's a fear of the Lord that leads to separation from him and fleeing from him. And there's also a fear of the Lord that leads to worshiping him and drawing near to him. There's a fear that leads us to, to trust him and run to him rather than away from him. And this is seen in numerous other places in, uh, in Scripture. Uh, Habakkuk 3 is, is an, an easy one to, to point to. At the end of the chapter, he, he's saying how he's going to trust the Lord... <clears throat> even when uh, th- everything is going wrong in his nation. At the beginning of the chapter, he says, but <clears throat> he mentions that he fears God. So his fear at the beginning concludes with, I'm going to trust and draw near to the Lord. And so uh, what we see overall <clears throat> is that this, uh, what, what a wife is called to and commanded to is, is a willing, respectful submission to her husband. And, and these are the attitudes that, that we have to be willing to stand for. This is, these are the attitudes that God commands uh, within the, the marriage and within the, the household. Uh, and our world uh, attacks them. And this is, this is where the rubber meets the road of are you willing to, to defend and talk about what the, the scriptures call husbands and wives uh, to do. And the attitudes that we're called to, to put on uh, in marriage. <clears throat> when, I, when I talk with uh, our college and young adults about wisely pursuing a spouse, I, I often use the illustration of understanding what the assignment of marriage is. Right, if, you, if you're given an, an assignment uh, at work or at school, you have to understand what is it my boss or what, what is it my professor wants me to accomplish here? 
Uh, and then I'm going to kind of make my plans to fulfill that assignment based upon what uh, the assignment is. And we have to understand what is, what am I doing in marriage? What, what is this assignment? And that's going to uh, impact who I choose to partner with on that assignment and what we're seeking to, to do uh, and what is, what does success look like? And, and love and, and respect are a big part of the assignment of marriage, but that's not everything in marriage. Uh, I would say love and respect, but I would also add in there confession of sin. Right? If you're in a marriage and you're married to somebody who refuses to acknowledge when they're wrong, is that fun or is that miserable? Uh, utterly miserable. Right? Confession, repentance, extending forgiveness, along with love and respect. These are going to be the, uh, the, the oil that keeps the, the, the marriage uh, running smoothly. And again, I would offer one more point of clarification here that love and, and respect are important. But a command uh, that's given to your spouse does not establish a need for you. Okay, this is really, really important. So a a wife uh, being instructed to respect her husband does not establish that a husband must uh, be respected by his wife or that he has a need for respect. That he, he is called to to love her and to care for her regardless of whether she respects him. Uh, his obedience is not dependent upon her obedience. And so we have to, to keep that in mind. That's where uh, this modern psychology today will, will seek to, to make this a, a trade and a bartering. of uh, The husband gives love and the wife gives respect and everything runs smoothly. But everything breaks down when one of those parties doesn't do uh, and fulfill what they're commanded to do. So that system is, uh, defeats itself. But the biblical command is that, no, you strive to be obedient uh, regardless of whether or not the other person is obedient. We talked about that uh, last time. And if you, if you are here and you are, uh, you're married, I, w- I would encourage you strive to develop the appropriate attitude in your marriage. What, what is the Lord calling you to begin to do? What attitude do you need to put on? If you're a husband, you need to put on an attitude of love. If you are a wife, you need to put on an attitude of respect. This is what the Lord is calling you to. If you are uh, single, uh, you need to, to prepare now. If, you, if you're not married, uh, the good news is you have uh, the assignments for the future. And you can begin to work on them ahead of time. Uh, begin to grow in these areas. And husbands, what would happen if you're in your marriage, your goal shifted from I, I need respect from my wife to I'm just going to, to love her and care for her. Uh, if that is the, the goal, then that's completely different. And you'll see that. And it, it, Why? What if your goal shifted to I must have love for my husband and when he's not loving and cherishing me, then I'm going to be bitter and, and angry towards him. Now, that's going to lead to, to heartache. True love is going to expect nothing in return. That's what we are called to. So we see these, these three characteristics of, of a biblical marriage, and all three of these characteristics will put us in hot water with the culture around us. And yet we must defend marriage as a God-ordained institution. We must defend marriage as a picture of Christ in the church. We must defend the attitudes that God commands in marriage as well. And again, as I said at the beginning, I've worded this as these are the characteristics that we need to defend, but these are also the characteristics that we need to to model and live out in our own lives and in our own relationships. I'll, I'll close with this. When, uh, when as a pastor and theologian who lived in the, the 18th century named John Wesley, 
when he was 48, he got hastily married uh, and entered into a marriage with a, with a woman, uh, a widow named Molly Bazell. And, and two weeks after the, the wedding, things were, were starting to go south. Uh, that he set off to preach. He was a, an itinerant preacher who went around uh, in uh, the colonies and in England. So Wesley set off to preach, and much to his disappointment, uh, his wife didn't write him for at least four days. And he wrote, he says, My body is stronger and stronger, and so is my love to you. God grant it, it may never go beyond uh, his will. Oh, that we may continue to love one another as Christ has loved us. So Molly, his wife, eventually tried traveling with John and working among the, the poor and attempting to, to help him in his ministry, but, but difficulties wore uh, out on her pretty quickly. But here's also the key, that Wesley made no attempt to change his schedule. He just desired his wife to show true compassion and, and godly obedience. Uh, in essence, hey, just come and do everything that I'm doing. I'm not going to accommodate you in any way, was his attitude. Well, his wife Molly grew increasingly resentful of his absences and developed a violent temper. As uh, she became more unhappy, Molly sought to make Wesley's life unhappy as well. She destroyed some of his writings, she publicly criticized him, and she repeatedly accused him of adultery. So they got married in 1751. In 1771, she abruptly left him. So 20 years into marriage, she abruptly left and then returned home three years later. Wesley was a small man, and shortly after Molly's return, a friend of Wesley's entered a room unannounced to find Molly dragging her husband across the floor by his hair. The things continued to deteriorate twice more that the couple attempted to reconcile. But in the end, Wesley was resolute in his rejection of his wife. He says, you have laid innumerable stumbling blocks in the way and increased the number of rebels, deists, atheists, and weaken the hands of those that love and fear God. If you were to live a thousand years twice uh, told, you could not undo the mischief which you have done. And until you have done all that you can towards it, I bid you farewell. Never to speak or meet again, Wesley was not even informed when she died. In his diary, he simply noted, I came to London and was informed that my wife died on Monday. This evening she was buried, though I was not informed of it. Now that is, that is a picture of marriage, right? But it is not a picture of Christ. You know, Christian marriage should look like that, let alone the marriage of a pastor. But I mention it here because I think, I think John and, and Molly Wesley forgot or, or willfully neglected acting upon the, the characteristics of marriage that we, we studied today. Right? If marriage is all about you and for you, then you'll cast it aside. You'll, you'll abandon it. But if, if marriage is about God, it's ordained by God, if marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, then and you begin to, to think and act differently. Right? If, if you are willing to, as a husband, love your wife in an understanding way, as First Peter 3 says, and as a wife, if you're willing to respect uh, your husband, things can go well to the glory of God. But if you're unwilling to do that, this is, a, this is an amazing 
account of what it looks like when husband and wife go their own separate ways while still remaining in the marriage. It brings heartache and conflict. But I would say that there's still hope in that situation. That beginning to submit your life, your marriage, uh, to the words and wisdom of Christ is going to bring hope in any situation. I want to en- encourage you, if you're here in your relationship, if your uh, marriage is, is on the rocks, there is hope and there is help to be found in Christ. And I would encourage you, come uh, shoot Bruce an email, shoot me an email, talk to your growth group leader. But we want to see marriages thriving. We want to see marriages accurately portraying the beauty and glory of the relationship between Christ and the church. Well, we want to see the blessings of marriage permeating down into the next generation. We want all of our children and grandchildren to be able to look at our marriages and say, that's what I want. Amen? Amen. Let me close this in prayer and then we'll, we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your infinite wisdom, your goodness, your glory, and your grace. In, in giving to humanity the institution of marriage. I pray that you would help us to stand strong, to stand firmly convinced that what you have ordained and commanded is good, beautiful, and true, that is given to us for our own good and for human flourishing. Father, I pray that you would help us to, to see and to examine the ways that we have not uh, followed your blueprint, your design. Uh, and Lord, help us to, to begin to, to pursue you rather than running from you. Help us to, be, to begin to align our lives with your word. Uh, and then uh, bless us. Uh, help us to, to see the, the change in, in the harvest as we begin to, to plant new seeds. Uh, seeds that are not according to our own wisdom, but according to your good and faithful commands. Lord, please shape and transform the marriages within our church. And may we be salt and light uh, in the, the community and in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. Uh, May you use us for your glory. Help us to be faithful ambassadors uh, of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose again for us. May we be faithful to picture and portray him accurately, who has saved us. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, you are uh, dismissed. Uh, If you have the spiritual gift of moving chairs and setting up tables, uh, we would enlist your help. We're going to begin our potluck at 1230. We would encourage you all to, to stick around and have a sweet time of food and fellowship.